We'd all love to spend more time outside, to see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it. But modern life can push us away from nature. Enter Berta. Berta is the free new app that boosts your birdwatching experience. Fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn seeing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Berta. Sign up today. It is free. You can find Berta, that is B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Look around your home. I bet there's a bunch of bird-related books or art. And of course there are, because, well, birds are your obsession. If you're looking for a great way to discover more bird-friendly brands, bird artists, authors, and so much more, we'd love to introduce you to BirderBox. BirderBox is a subscription service that sends you a package four times a year filled with birdie things that allow you to dive deeper into your passion. BirderBox is the world of birding unboxed. Learn more at birderbox.com. That's B-R-D-R-B-O-X-X.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I came across a pretty fascinating new study the other week involving albatrosses, which are pretty fascinating species just generally, so obviously my interest was piqued. And the report looked to solve one of the enduring seabird mysteries, and that is how these species, which spend almost their entire life on the apparently featureless open ocean, find food? How do they anticipate conditions that are associated with good weather for flying and food opportunities for foraging? Uh, For relatively short distances, we know that they use smell and sight, seabirds in particular, tube noses. They have a pretty incredible sense of smell. But these birds typically range over many thousands of hectares of open water, where most of the time, very little is happening. So how do they put themselves in the right places at the right times. So this team of researchers led by Natasha Gillies of the University of Liverpool in the UK came up with the very clever idea that birds are perhaps using infrasound cues. Uh, Infrasound is an extremely low frequency sound well below what humans can perceive that can travel for many thousands of kilometers in the atmosphere. And in marine habitats, it is associated with storms, and surface waves, which could make it a very useful cue for predicting the conditions that albatrosses and other pelagic species know means good opportunities for feeding and for easy flying. So sensitivity to infrasound is not uncommon in many mammal and bird species, sort of famously elephants can use it to communicate across long distances. And interestingly enough, chickens and domestic pigeons also have the ability to perceive infrasonic sounds, which suggests that this is something that many birds probably share, and in particular, larger birds with bigger ears. So with this in mind, uh, they put some biologgers on the backs of wandering albatrosses and did some sophisticated acoustic modeling of the type that I cannot really explain well or even maybe understand. But the gist is that these birds were moving towards areas with more of these infrasound sources. And in fact, they were actually able to document points where the albatrosses actively soaring out on the ocean were able to make decisions to go towards these sources, which suggests that they are aware of them and attracted to them because of feeding opportunities or for wind conditions that allow them to travel long distances more efficiently. So what we have here is just more information indicating that the world that birds inhabit is more incredible than we humans with our puny senses can even perceive. As my friend Jordan frequently says, birds 
are awesome. Albatrosses, maybe especially so. On the show this week, I am excited to introduce you to the ABA's new executive director, Wayne Klockner. He talks to me about his birding origins, what he thinks the ABA means to birders, and why we should tell more bird stories. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of October 2023. We love a good pattern here on the Rare Bird Focus, and this week it's vagrant flycatchers in Canada. Quebec's first record of gray flycatcher was captured at a banding station at Tadoussac on the St. Lawrence River, and Manitoba gets on the board for the first time in three years with a provincial first record of vermilion flycatcher at Victoria Beach. Both of these species have been seen elsewhere in the eastern part of the ABA area this fall, suggesting something bigger going on. North Carolina had a gray flycatcher a few weeks ago, and Michigan, Wisconsin, Maryland, and Nova Scotia have all had vermilions in the last month. One of the more interesting rarity stories of the last week came from Washington, where the state's second record of little bunting was seen in Clallam County by many birders before it was unceremoniously taken by a merlin. Why the falcon went after the little bunting and not the savannah sparrow it was associating with is anyone's guess, but knowing merlins, that was probably intentional. And this fall is shaping up to be an interesting one for interior west species wandering to the east. In the last week or two, we've seen Cassin's Finch in Jamestown, North Dakota, gray-crowned Rosie Finch in Chicago, Wisconsin's second Clark's Nutcracker in Dane County, and both Dusky Flycatcher and Brewer Sparrow in Ontario. It is definitely a suite of birds that birders should be on the lookout for in the coming season. Those are the highlights for this past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA area rare bird alert group on Facebook and an ABA community. This past summer, the ABA welcomed the new executive director. Wayne Klockner comes to us after a long career with the Nature Conservancy in Maryland and beyond with efforts that have led to the conservation of thousands of acres of natural areas, the restoration of commercial and shell fisheries, and the establishment of TNC's climate strategy. He lives and birds in Ocean City, Maryland, and it is my pleasure to bring him onto the podcast to introduce him to the wider ABA world, as to the extent that you haven't already been introduced to the wider ABA world. Uh, welcome, Wayne. I-, I hope the first few months of your tenure have been productive. Uh, they have been. Thanks a lot, Nate. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's just let's just start at the beginning. How did you start birding? How did you become a birder? I, I've always been an outdoor person and was fortunate enough uh, to be uh, to, to have grown up near farmland that uh, both my mother's father and my father's father owned within walking distance of our home. And so I had a lot of cousins to roam those fields and forests with and mm-hmm. uh, just gained an appreciation for the outdoors early on. Uh, of course, the things that grabbed me the, the 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 most back then were the exciting things like snakes, oh, yeah. catching oh, frogs or turtles, or trying to catch fish in the creek. Uh, but one year, one winter, uh, mom, who wasn't a birder, decided to put out a bird feeder so she could watch birds out the kitchen window. And uh, that happened. The birds started to come, and uh, uh, one of those birds was a, a dark gray and white bird familiar to most of us, the dark-eyed junco. But when I saw that thing, which I'd never seen up to that time, I just was seized with a compulsion to know what it was, and that was the beginning of my birding obsession. Yeah, I was about 11 at the time. It, it's so funny how common species like that, I mean, like you said, every, everyone on the continent is pretty familiar with dark-eyed junco. They're found all over the place. 
it sort of opens up this world because then you start wondering where did this bird come from and how far did it travel? And this the idea that something that small could have traveled such long distances to get to your feeder outside your window is, I think, a a feeling that even now, when I think about it, it is it fills me with a ton of amazement. Uh, makes me makes me glad to be a birder, I guess, to know that stuff. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. I mean, how come I didn't see that bird before? Yeah, you know, where did it come from? Why is it only here in the winter and I don't see it in the summer? Yeah, uh, this was central New Jersey, and they're just they just don't breed there. Um, but I, you know, that amazement that you talk about in terms of birds, how they travel, they fly. Uh, you know, it's just been a constant source of amazement for me, and it's never gone away. Did you start as at the Nature Conservancy as a birder? Were birds sort of the main avenue towards your desire to be working in in conservation? No, I wouldn't put it that way. I guess my you know my love of the outdoors, which is what really drove me to uh, you know the college degree that I earned, and then the, the the jobs that I took after college. I after I graduated, I was fortunate to uh, to land a job collecting uh, data in the field for natural areas in on the coastal plain of Maryland. Mm -hmm. It was a coastal zone management, a short-term project. And uh, I got to do something I was already familiar with and loved to do, wander around in the woods and in the marshes and identify (laughs) plants and animals. And And write down what you've seen. (laughs) Write down what I see. And uh, I ended up doing that for, um, gosh, three and a half summers. Uh, well, three summers and then later in that period, the intervening months, uh, which led to a full-time job with the Department of Natural Resources in Maryland, again, focused on managing uh, land and water. Uh, but it was through that job that I became acquainted with the Nature Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Was the Nature Conservancy uh, protecting lands in coastal Maryland and you just sort of you know, wanted to get on board with that, with that work? What were they doing that really attracted you there? Well, I love the fact that the conservancy was directly protecting land, raising money and directly protecting land. Yeah, I think that's a that's a thing that a lot of people, you know, most most birders, most environmentalists, most conservationists are are familiar with um, the Nature Conservancy as an organization. I think I agree with you. I think it's that direct, you know, it's something as simple as just purchasing this land and saving it, or or maintaining it, or managing it, or whatever that is just really appealing. It's such a simple concept. And it's one that uh, it's, it's easy to get people on board for. Absolutely. And I, you know, a very powerful concept. And I and TNC actually reached out to me, to us at the Department of Natural Resources, because all of that data that I collected those summers with yeah. other field biologists ended up being valuable to the Nature Conservancy to help make decisions about what land yeah. to protect. And so uh, they reached out to me. I got to know them. And the next thing I know, I was offered a job and jumped at the chance. Yeah. And it, it went from there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think, um, I think the ABA just in general has always uh, struggled a little bit to define itself uh, in comparison to some of those legacy environmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy and, and others. Um, what do you think that the ABA can learn from those organizations? Well, that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm sure, um, <laughs> sure. In, a lot of a lot months, of us have been. Yeah, yeah. The early months of my tenure here, I, you know, I think um, 
What attracted me to the Nature Conservancy was its singular mission, its particular focus, the way it went about pursuing that mission. It was quite clear um, to protect the lands and waters on, upon which all life depends. And back then, when I was working in Maryland in the early days of my TNC career, it was focused on rare, threatened, and endangered species habitat and the best examples of natural communities. Um, again, that, that laser-like focus. A lot of people came to the Nature Conservancy wanting us to do other things, and we had the discipline to say no. At ABA, it's been tougher for me to, to define so far. Um, I've been a member off and on of the ABA since, well, the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And what attracted me to the American Birding Association back then was the magazine. Mm-hmm. Because in the magazine, I found information on birding that I couldn't get anywhere else. Remember, folks, this was pre-internet. <laughs> and, <laughs> true. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and so, you know, those bird ID articles, those wonderful stories about going to far-flung places like that to, um, the, the, the gear articles, I mean, you could only find that stuff in print. And so ABA was the place to go to get it. And uh, that's what really um, got me interested in, in, in being a member of the ABA and staying a member uh, pretty much ever since. Um, things have changed tremendously mm. since back then, of course. And uh, now there's almost too much information available in terms of gear, in terms of birds, in terms yeah. of bird ID. Uh, 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 one has to be pretty uh, driven and disciplined to scour the uh, recess of the internet to find all that stuff. Yeah. And so I, as I think about ABA in the present day, it's less about its legacy of listing. It's less about birding magazine being the only recourse to find that information and more about how ABA can convene a community of birders, share stories, share opinions about gear, about bird ID, et cetera. And um, uh, just, uh, I hate to use the word clearinghouse because that feels too cold to me. It's more, I'll go back to the C word, the community word, mm-hmm. more about convening uh, a group of birders to, uh, to share the passion for birds and birding and perhaps provide ways to make it easier to share information about bird ID, about travel destinations, about gear, about birding apps, you know, and which ones to use um, to help us all uh, be better birders and to um, be better at recruiting new birders. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You're just thinking about my own experiences with the ABA before I became sort of affiliated with them. Um, yeah, it was the same thing that attracted me. It was the birding magazine as a you know teenage birder in the 90s that that information was uh, essential to furthering my own interest, even if I was never going to go to Western Alaska or, I don't know, you know, teenage me would have never imagined going to a lot of the places that I've been fortunate enough to go to now, but that's, that's, but you know, you, you, you said community, this community of, of sharing this information, sharing information has always been such a big part of what makes birding attractive to me. And a lot of that information that is out there, as you, as you said, I mean, it feels very raw. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is just it is just data. Um, and if you can filter through that data 
then great, you can get a lot out of it. But I think a lot of newer birders sometimes feel very intimidated by the amount of raw data that is out there. And it, exactly. and, and I, you know, from my perspective, if the ABA can provide an avenue towards, you know, making that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe being a curator of that data uh, to make it useful to people, I think that's a good, good role for us. But uh, you're right. We, we've never had that sort of laser focus that you, that attracted people to, to organizations like PNC. It's always been a little bit more nebulous. And I think that's something that we've had a hard time getting our hands around. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree to an extent. Maybe I wouldn't use nebulous. It's certainly more varied. Yeah. Maybe that's being, better word. being yeah. varied isn't necessarily a bad thing. So long as we don't lose sight of what our various services and programs and offerings are for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love the, the characterization you just made of the data out there being somewhat raw. It can be overwhelming to new mm-hmm. birders who uh, are just getting into it for the first time. And it can be wrong. overwhelming to experienced birders when you get into stuff like molt and, and yeah. vagrancy and all the little kind of little things that, that you know, the, into the weeds, I guess. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, thinking about those services and offerings and programs that ABA does have, how can we think about those in a more um, uh, structured or, or mm-hmm. focused framework or mission-driven style that um, that attracts folks to it? And and by being attracted to it, they become a part of the community that helps mm-hmm. make us all better. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that's happened in the years since I first joined the ABA is um, the Lab of O. Mm-hmm. Audubon, uh, local birding clubs. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of other organizations and and groups that uh, provide an avenue for birders to enjoy birds and birding. And that's a good thing. So it, in light of the proliferation of those other organizations, those other ways in which birders can enjoy their passion, um, I think ABA needs to think about what in particular can we provide better than anybody else? Where are we best positioned to provide information in ways that the other organizations just might not have the time or the focus or uh, the mission to, yeah. uh, to provide? Uh, what, what might be missing out there that ABA can fill in terms of a void uh, uh, that birders are looking to fill? Yeah, for sure. You know, when I think about the major bird bird organizations and bird conservation organizations in North America, um, you know, you look at some, you look at Audubon and ABC and Birds Canada and all those and Cornell Lab, as you said, they've all they're all doing something slightly different, and it, it is sort of a unique ecosystem, birding community ecosystem, compared to what we see in other other countries. Um, I do think that the that North America, and by that I mean U.S. and Canada, the ABA area. Um, is is unique in the sense that we have an organization that is primarily aimed at the hobby birder, the the sport of birding, the art of birding, the the lifestyle of birding, whatever more than um, conservation and you know list keeping and, and big data and science and stuff. And and there's certainly you know if we're looking at the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlapping parts and for all those things because certainly sure. as an amateur birder, as a hobby birder. I'm interested in the science and I'm interested in, in environmental issues and I'm interested in, in all that stuff. But, you know, 
the the singular sort of way that I approach all of those issues is through my hobby of birding. And the ABA has always been the organization for that. And how to get, you know, other people on board with that, I think is yeah, the the million dollar question, <laughs> maybe even literally, uh, for for the ABA. Yeah, I think that's right. I and I do think I do think that ABA does some things particularly well. Um, you know, I think serving as a a, 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 a both a collator, a gatherer, and a filter for all of that raw information out there about birds, bird identification, distribution, and status. That's a service that we can and should provide to the mm. community so that for those who aren't quite as obsessed as I am, for example, or perhaps you are, you know, they don't have to spend the hours wandering around on the internet looking yeah. for that stuff. Yeah. Um, we can perhaps serve as, uh, well, as a community of birders who've tried various gear and we can share our mm. opinion with one another about uh, what we think serves our needs the best. Yes, there are gear reviews elsewhere, but um, ABA members are hard, you know, are, are avid birders who mm -hmm. um, I think by and large go the extra mile to really understand what their needs are and how best to fill them in terms of gear, for example, or apps or field guides. Um, and and I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, ABA's efforts to sort of inspire and uplift the next generation of birders. I've been so impressed with the Young Birder programs, yeah. whether it's the camps, which are going to expand, whether it's uh, the mentor program, which puts young birders in touch with more experienced birders so that they can climb that birding ladder even faster, um, whether it's the birding exchange uh, that provides gear and field guides to those birding communities elsewhere, you know, in Latin America, say, or, or in less well-served parts of even the ABA area. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a service that ABA has done well and should continue to, 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 to grow if possible. And I certainly want to see it grow under, uh, under uh, my watch along with the staff and board. Yeah, for sure. The Young Birder stuff is, is incredible. Uh, one, Laura does an amazing job with it these days. And you know, you look at the people who are the thought leaders in birding now, and it is a it is a who's who of people that have come through the ABA's camps or the ABA's Young Bird of the Year program. Um, I was an I was an ABA scholarship recipient mm. um, back uh, for for to go to a birding camp when I was a teenager, and and you know, I look at all the young academics and young conservation professionals out there that have come through the ABA's programs, and how can you not say that as as an amazing Amazing opportunity that that the AB does very well, and that um, that you know you, we want to continue to do or even grow in those situations. Yeah, yeah, I, I um, I'm always impressed with uh, the young birders, p people who get into it when you know at the age that I was when I got mm -hmm. into it, or perhaps Nate, the age that you were when you got into it. Um, and like the two of us, I suspect. Uh, they too uh, are just driven to be the best they can be, and um, increasingly, I think, serve as models for bringing other yeah. people into birding. And yeah, uh, no doubt. so it's not an it's 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 not overstating it to say that they are the future of birding. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I can think of uh, two or three people just here in Maryland who are uh, just awesome birders, and uh, 
you know, one of them is, I guess, 20 years old and just already is making a mark for himself uh, here in, in Maryland. Uh, gives me a lot of hope for the future of the hobby as well as, um, you know, as well as for the f- future of the environment. Uh, I think we all feel that birds and birding um, sort of builds in each of us uh, an appreciation for uh, and a commitment to um, do right by the environment, to do right. Uh, the, the bigger an environmental conscience we can grow in society through the sport, through the pastime of birding, the better for all of us, everybody. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's an angle that I think that I've I've at least here I've tried to push on. I, I believe that as birders, you 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 might get into birding because of the community, because of the fun of, and also, you know, you can't not be a witness to the environmental issues that are going on around you, be they small scale or large scale. Uh, when you are a birder, you see it. You you know, we as I said, we we are witnesses. We see this stuff happening, and we. How can you not want to do something about it once you become a birder? And that's that's a that's a well worn path, I think, in the uh, birder to conservation environmentalist uh, yeah, journey. Ab- absolutely, uh, but it doesn't make it any less important. I think yeah, for sure for for the future of birds and and bird habitat. The other thing I've admired ABA for, and, and Nate, I was a listener to your podcast long before oh, I right started applying for this job. <laughs> You know, are, are, are the ways in which ABA has begun to use, well, podcasting, webinars, uh, a web presence mm-hmm. to get the word out on interesting opportunities to help people grow in, in their pastime, to share experience, um, whether it's the podcast, whether it's our growing webinar program, uh, whether it's the new ABA community and the community app. Um, I think we have to adapt. Uh, with the times and uh, ABA has shown an ability to do that. Um, I, I think the future is bright for that and we'll need to be smart about how mm-hmm. we apply our resources, time and effort uh, to making the most of that in a way that's most attractive, most relevant to the birding community out there. Yeah, there, there really seems to be a through line Uh for, from the things that we were initially attracted to from the ABA, we, we talked about the magazine articles and the and the um, you know that sort that stuff. That, yeah. I mean, those are stories, right? And we're yeah. just coming up with new ways to tell those stories, be they here on the American Birding Podcast or or, or through, still in our publications. That's still a major you know part of what we do in our in Birding Magazine and the special issues in North American Birds uh, and the webinars as well. Like, these are ways to tell birding stories and i think we all know that stories are a very effective way to to get people engaged in not only the hobby of birding but the environmental issues therein for sure and i i mean a big part of birding for me are those stories you know when i started out birding i had no mentors mm-hmm. uh i had i had no contemporaries to go birding with i was on my own yeah and i was happy to do that for a long time um I dare say that the learning curve was climbed much more slowly than it could have been otherwise, but um, I really enjoyed the experience nonetheless. And uh, later on, um, well into my teens, when I finally did meet some mentors and contemporaries, it just accelerated and Mm -hmm. made it even more enjoyable. And now, um, 
getting together with birders uh, in the field or at a bird club meeting or even online through the forums on ABA community, for example. Um, the part I really enjoy is, is just sharing stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be as simple as, gee, when's the last time you saw that buff-breasted sandpiper? Or, you know, how was the hawk watching this past fall up on uh, at, at your particular hawk watch? And just sharing the stories about the, the, what the season was like is, is just such a big, has become such a big part of birding for mm-hmm. me. And I hope uh, ABA and the various means uh, with which we connect with our members and, and the public at large um, always provide an, an opportunity of, for that kind of sharing. For sure. Well, hey, you want to tell a story now? What is, what is your favorite place to bird near your home in uh, Ocean City, Maryland these days? Well, we just moved. We just moved here. Uh, we lived in Massachusetts for gosh, twenty-one years, and I had a lot of favorite places up there. But, but I now live. We now live uh, at just outside of Ocean City, Maryland, near the coast. And one of the places I've really come to love, and I knew it before in a previous life, but uh, it's been great to get reacquainted, uh, is the Astigue Island National Seashore, mm-hmm. which is literally a ten-minute drive from the house. Oh, that's nice. And, um, you know, that's just a wonderful, um, uh, uh, natural barrier Island with, uh, you know, great beaches, extensive marshes and some nice patches of Loblolly pine and mixed forest on it that in particular during migration, spring and fall can be just excellent, excellent places to bird. And, um, uh, you know, it's always, uh, sort of a, a wonderful um, anticipation of going to some of these places I visit time and time and time mm-hmm. again, uh, just waiting to see what's going to show up. One of the things, you know, I, I keep a life list, of course. I keep a county list. Um, I, uh, I, I keep an ABA area list. But I, I hesitate to call myself a hardcore lister. What I've grown into is a, a patch birder. I mm-hmm. love coming back to the same place time and time again and just seeing how seasonally it changes in terms of its bird life and in other ways too. And so there's one uh, uh, path, a trail there on Astig Island that I walk all the time. It's called Life of the Marsh and it includes some upland habitat and then this boardwalk goes way out over the marshes and back uh, back to uh, some sandy, scrubby habitat and uh, depending on the time of year, it could be really quiet or it could be really exciting. And um, some of the best birds I've seen there are the, the, the unexpected things like uh, clay-colored sparrow this fall or uh, a, 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 a whole slew of different warblers that happened in the spring on one particular morning after a fallout. Uh, these birds uh, getting blown offshore by a southwesterly wind in the spring head for the nearest land. And mm-hmm. where I live, that's Astig Island. And the fallouts can be really exciting on a May morning if you hit it just right. And you can wa- actually watch the birds come out of the air into uh, the trees and shrubs around you. Yeah, that's cool. Super cool. Didn't you have a flamingo out there this fall? Not on Astig. <laughs> Nearby, maybe. There was one on Astig, and we <laughs> tried our best to find one yeah. in Maryland. But I had to go down to Chincoteague, Virginia, oh. all the oh. way up. South All the way to another state. Just just a month. Just a an hour away. <laughs> and, uh, 
that's where I got my ABA era area flamingo just a few weeks ago. Yeah, well, it, it, the the executive director of the ABA has to take part in the biggest <laughs> bird phenomenon of of the year, perhaps. Uh, so that's always nice that uh, we got a lot of people on there. Oh yeah, uh, it was so exciting to watch that unfold, and yeah. uh, wow. you know, it was it was really fun to see ABA post a summary of that phenomenon mm-hmm. yeah you did a great job you know in so doing share a spectacular story from uh this past fall yeah it's it's been wild i mean you you know we've been talking about this in the in the slack channel kind of the the local slack channel like we've gotten so much attention from regular media uh every yep. once in a while there are these overlaps in amazing bird phenomena and and you know regular the regular media the the normal people i guess uh, who are interested in it. And it's nice that the ABA has been able to be a opportunity, a, a source of information to kind of put all this in context in a way that, you know, I, I think that's something we do very well. Um, certainly something that we were thinking about a lot during the time, a lot of, lot of, lot of flamingo talk. Yep. And um, any, any opportunity we have to, you know, raise our awareness among, you know, people who are curious about what's going on. Hard to miss a flamingo in a farm field. Uh, so <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Now, I mean, the other, the other thing I loved about, uh, I love about living close to the coast is, you know, getting offshore and, mm-hmm. uh, our friend George Armistead, yeah, yeah. Rep, Hill Star nature tours, uh, out of Lewis, Delaware, uh, late summer this year into Maryland waters. And, uh, it was one of those trips where we boarded the boat at nine at night. Slept oh, on the upper deck, oh, the boat steamed all night long, and at dawn we were 85 miles offshore in Maryland waters, and immediately saw Leech's storm petrel. Yeah, we had white-faced storm petrel an hour and a half later. We had black-capped petrels, other shearwaters, lots of Wilson storm petrels. It was just, you know, a spectacular day offshore. Yeah, and it was calm. So yours. Oh, nice, suffer, lucky. <laughs> but you can suffer at times if it's rough. Yeah, no, I hear that. Great that. trip. Yeah. Anything else that you wanted to say or is it are you good? No, I look forward to to continuing to uh to meet ABA members and and birders at large as I get out and about. Um been attending some birding festivals, having mm-hmm. attended the Cape May Festival just a couple of weeks ago. I'll be in uh I'll be in Texas next week. And um what I enjoy about that is just hearing from you, the birders out there about you know what's important to you, what what your needs are in birding, and how ABA might uh, might better provide those. So I look forward to the conversation and the sharing of stories. Absolutely. Wayne Klockner is the new executive director of the American Birding Association. Only been on the job what three months now? Three, three months. Three months, man. All right. Uh, well, you can you can catch him at the birding festivals, especially down in Texas. If you're going to be there, please come by and say hello. Um, Wayne is as nice to talk to you in a non uh, business sort of <laughs> setting. I guess we'll see you at the next staff meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Absolutely. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like this podcast, but memberships get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines and discounts to partners like Olympus, where ABA membership gives you a 10% discount on OM system cameras and lenses. Depending on what you get, that pays for your membership right there. You can find out how to get involved at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Morris Sandvig and family of Turnwater 
Washington, who joined the ABA this week and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you, Morris and family. We're excited to have you. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, whose bank sent him a letter congratulating him for joining the community of bankers at the ABA. American Bankers Association. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose efforts producing this podcast have not gone unnoticed by the ABA, the Australian Broadcasting Authority. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, whose energy for Croating exemplary service has been recognized by the ABA, the Association for Balkan Anthropology. You can find us online at aba.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association, on Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swig. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. We'll see you next week.